Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hello to everyone in blog radio land. This is attorney Charles Marshall again on the West Coast Foreclosure Show. And today is October 5th, 2017. I'm broadcasting live from Southern California. The West Coast Foreclosure Show is broadcast on the first and third Thursday of each month and will typically focus on West Coast developments. Uh, Neil Garfield will continue to broadcast his regular show on the second and fourth Thursday of each month. And, of course, the West Coast Foreclosure Show is sponsored by Neil Garfield. Uh, In this episode, we have, again, investigator Bill Padalo with us. And he will be discussing one of his favorite topics, Chase, and how they manipulated their purported taking over of the assets of Washington Mutual a number of years ago. And the process deceiving both homeowners and the courts. And that deception is ongoing and continuing. Even bank witnesses being deposed are unable to explain the WAMU Chase acquisition or when or how notes were acquired, endorsed, or assigned. This show is brought to you by GTC Honors, Living Lies, and LendingLies.com and is possible because of donations from listeners like you. Thank you. Any amount you're able to donate is appreciated, and you can donate directly by selecting the Donate button on the blog at www.livinglies.wordpress.com. So, discussion of witnesses today, depositions, and even a notice of errata, which all comes down to fake documents. Bill, why don't you uh, start and tell the the audience how a notice of errata plays into... uh, a number of big developments in the Chase-WAMU ongoing deception. Well, thank you, Charles. It's good to be back and uh, talking about this issue, which I think is very important, and I think this information um, needs to get out, and each day we're getting closer to uh, shedding the spotlight on these deceptive acts. I mean, they're really shameless. Um, 
We talked a little bit in the past about this AO1 code and the stipulation that came out of the, the uh, Fox case there in Southern California over the past summer. And uh, clearly, Chase, uh, as I've mentioned, uh, realized that they stepped uh, in a hornet's nest uh, by, by filing that stipulation. And uh, we're really curious to see um, how they were going to react. And sure enough, uh, we see a... Uh, motion for errata that was filed in the case long after the case had been dismissed. Uh, they attempt to come in and try to erase history, so to speak, and scrub the uh, slate clean of their uh, devastating admission here in this case. And it was really um, <laughs> a, a pretty astounding type of motion and a very um, clear act of desperation on their part. Um, I'm sure I'll let you explain what an emotion of errata is intended for and, and uh, how this absolutely doesn't apply. But what was really um, uh, interesting in that motion, and I believe it will be posted on the site here uh, just prior to the show, is that there's a deposition transcript um, uh, attached to the oppositional brief um, for that errata, and that includes the chase witness who was dis uh, deposed in the Fox matter. And that deposition transcript um, is, is very much like many of the other witnesses that Chase marches in in cases across the country dealing with these issues. But uh, one thing that's very important is that she admits in this deposition that Chase does have uh, the information regarding the investor codes and who those investors are. And that information is easily obtainable through their what's called their LISA system, and it's acronym L-I-S-A. And, and we've been saying and going after this information and discovery uh, repeatedly in cases all over, and the witnesses uh, refuse to, um, or Chase, I should say, refuses to cough up this information or pre provide it in discovery. The witnesses say, uh, when the questions, hard questions are asked, uh, what does this investor code mean? Who is it? Uh, so on and so forth. Um, it's always, um, I don't know, I don't know. Um, you ask the questions, uh, you know, this note here bearing an endorsement in blank by whether it's Cynthia Riley or any one of the other former WAMU officers. Tell us when you uh, obtained, when Chase obtained this note, when it was endorsed. Uh, any facts surrounding this, the, the answers are universally, uh, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, very evasive. And uh, that's getting a little bit old because now we know that not only does Chase have that information in their custody and control, uh, especially the investor information and the Lisa systems, but they also have in there what's called their dock line reports. And, and the witness here in this deposition um, in this motion of errata speaks to the dock line report. And I've attested and seen evidence from this dock line report, and I've attested in cases that the evidence shows, and especially in cases I've been involved, that the notes are being endorsed in blank uh, years after the receivership. And they're doing it usually in preparation for some sort of litigation and delivery of the so-called collateral files to the law firms. And that information is at their, uh, it's in their system. They know where to access it, and yet they continue to play coy and say that not only do they not know where to find it, 
but they don't know anyone at Chase who can answer the questions either. So it's 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 uh, kind of appalling that uh, they they keep playing these games. And you know, one of the things that Chase has attacked me on specifically uh, in my testimony in trials and on the stand or in depositions is they repeatedly come after me saying that I couldn't possibly uh, be allowed to testify as to any of these servicing documents or the Chase systems because I didn't work for Chase, I haven't been trained by Chase, and therefore uh, you know, there's no way I can speak to any of that. But what's, what's very ironic when you read these deposition transcripts is that the witnesses for Chase, they're the ones who clearly are, are uh, acting as though they've had no training because they can't answer any basic questions as to what the codes mean, what the screenshots mean. They literally say, and, and you can look at that McCormick deposition, the answers to all the simple questions is, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. It's bank-owned, bank-owned. Chase is the investor. How do you know that? Because Chase, you know, just because so, Chase is the investor. Everything else, they have no knowledge of anything. And... uh and I think that's a big problem when we talk about the consent judgments as well because it was very clear that anyone who's verifying and submitting affidavits in cases regarding this information, according to the consent judgment, were required to be trained and certified on these systems and provide certifications of that training and exactly what they were trained on, and they're supposed to have knowledge of it. Well, clearly as persons most knowledgeable, these witnesses are coming in clearly coached uh, by the attorneys and counsel for Chase, and uh, they are uh, basically uh, Sergeant Schultz here. They know nothing. They absolutely know nothing other than what, other than what they're being told to say. Yeah, that's very good information for the uh, listening audience. And I have to say with this particular case, as I always do, I look at the legal procedure that's being used, and Chase is really uh, – the, the attorneys that brought this particular uh, notice of errata, it's actually not a formal motion. This is one of the interesting things about pleading practice. If you, if, 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 if you need to get something done – for your side, whatever side you're on, whether it's foreclosure related or not. And here I'm just talking basic litigation strategy. If you need to get something done for your side, you would always rather file a notice than a motion. And the reason for that is simple. A notice by definition does not invite or even theoretically allow opposition to be, to be presented. However, notices can and do sometimes draw opposition when they're misused, as is the case here. So what happened here is that the attorneys representing Chase in this particular legal matter, they wanted to literally change testimony about a three-digit numerical code that relates directly to identifying the investors at issue in this case. And the, the deponent did provide 
specific information about the three-digit identifier. Uh, notwithstanding that she didn't provide a lot of other information and essentially filibustered, as, as Bill was just indicating, she did provide some real useful information, which then essentially was, was in the legal case and could be put in the pleadings from there. And so Chase's solution to that, or that of their attorneys, certainly, because they filed these documents, they file a notice of errata, which is basically saying, well, there was a previous filing, and we need to correct that filing. But the problem here is a notice of errata is supposed to correct what used to be called a scrivener's error, which essentially is almost like an inadvertent written mistake. You know, it could come down to you left out an address information or you you put the wrong identifying information about something. This is not about that. They're trying to get removed from the official record the identification code. They're not saying it's a different identification code. They're trying to get it scrubbed from the record entirely. And so they file this notice of errata misusing the process for that. So, but they can get around having to file a motion. And the, the plaintiff's counsel here, uh, out of Southern California, Ron Freshman, very intelligently opposed this notice of errata and explained how they were, they were making an end run around the discovery rules. Um, so, Bill, why don't you tell the listeners a, a bit more about what was going on in this deposition uh, with the deponent and, and, and more about what Chase is trying to cover up here? Well, you know, I think that the whole issue of the AO1 code really um, has a much greater reach and a bigger impact on thousands of other cases as opposed to the Fox case. I mean, the, the ironic thing is is that the court granted summary judgment in, in, in uh, favor of Chase uh, in the Fox case, and then the case was dismissed. And, and so they're coming in after the fact trying to erase this, not because uh, it was a mistake in the Fox case or that it, it was going to hurt them there, because, again, they had to take the position in Fox, because in Fox – there was a 2007 series WAMU trust that was actually um, in play where there was an assignment to an actual a trust. And so for their chain of title story to, uh, to hold up, they had to uh, t- attest that the, the parties to the securitization transaction, the ABC chain of title for that transaction, had to have occurred. And in doing so, it went to the depositor, WAMU Asset Acceptance Corp. in 2007, and that that AO1 belonged to that. So that's the story they had to take, and they also, again, stipulated that that loan did not go through the FDIC, which is very critical. Now, when I'm coming in, and I've attested that the vast majority of these loans uh, went into the off-balance sheet activities, and I was, uh, you know, on the heels of this stipulation, as I, as I said before, I was uh, testifying in a case in Connecticut on this AO1 where they've gone against me. Chase says, no, AO1 is bank-owned. It is nothing other than Washington Mutual Bank. The, their witnesses have said that AO1 is not Asset Acceptance Corp. Um, and so they 
you know, were have been butting heads with me on that issue, and so their courtroom was uh, filled with some Chase attorneys, and I you could see clearly that uh, to try to keep the uh, cat from getting out of the bag, so to speak, in the Connecticut case or whatever, they were rushing into California to try to clean up this mess that had occurred. So it's really, I think Chase is very concerned, obviously, as they should be, that this is going to impact them um, on a far greater level. But one thing, uh, as I mentioned earlier, that in, in many of these cases where I've submitted my uh, testimony or I've uh, either through declaration, affidavit, or live trial testimony, um, my opinions on these dock line reports that the notes are being endorsed after the receivership, my opinions as to the AO1, which has now been confirmed, um, the witnesses, Chase has yet brought in a witness who has uh, gone toe-to-toe with me and has rebutted my opinion saying that I'm wrong and that here is the truth and here's why I'm wrong. They simply... Uh, try to shoot the messenger and file motions as the strike and call me every name in the book and all that sort of thing. But they don't have any credible witness with any evidence to come forth and rebut anything I've said uh, to date. Um, so, you know, in this uh, errata motion, I mean, if you read through that, I mean, it's it's ruthless and shameless. I mean, they go after Ron Freshman in this thing, accusing him as though he had something to do with coercing this uh, stipulation and all kinds of nasty things that they that that they say. I mean, they they are willing to um, uh, really um, character assassinate and do all kinds of things uh, that I believe completely unethical uh, to try to put uh, put this cat back in the bag I, I think you're you're absolutely right on in, in your analysis here and Chase like the other big institutional players uh, often the plaintiffs in judicial foreclosure cases typically defendants and non-judicial foreclosure foreclosure cases in states you know out here in the west especially uh, they're always using an angle, no matter what. And, you know, just to give a little bit more backdrop to how listeners can can view the use of depositions and, and other discovery techniques and what's going on in these cases, some of this I've discussed previously, but I think it's really important for the listeners to understand the fundamental litigation strategy at play here Discovery is is almost always done by the institutional players because they can absorb the cost of that. Discovery is typically, I would say, invariably even, quite expensive, running into the thousands of dollars. A single deposition, no matter who you're deposing, no matter which side you're on, will cost thousands of dollars. And so that becomes a, a real funding issue for everyone, from the client to the attorney. It's not an issue on the other side. They really do, in some ways, have bottomless money. And the, the, the goal with discovery should always be, no matter what side you're on, you, you want to set up a motion for summary judgment or deflect a motion from summary judgment from the other side. And worst-case scenario, if a motion for summary judgment fails – 
again, depending on what side you're on on that, of course your goals will will reflect whether you're on the defense side or the plaintiff side of a motion for summary judgment. Then the case goes to trial if that motion fails. But if you can get from a deposition, and again, I'm talking universally. It doesn't matter whether we're talking with the institutional lenders bringing these motions for our side for plaintiff's cases here in California. When those motions are brought, if you have deposition testimony, if you have favorable discovery exposing the weaknesses of the other side, you can sometimes win a motion for summary judgment. And the the institutional lenders and servicers, they will use those motions to try to kill a case when they're on the defense side. And, of course, our goal is to counteract that. And, you know, for some clients, they're just not able to to put together the money to, to fund the really extensive discovery that ideally would go on in these cases. And I, I always want to, to provide kind of cautionary optimism for listeners. Um, and, you know, I'm somebody who, who does always look at, the kind of pitfalls to a particular approach, but I'm also somebody who's always looking for an angle so that we can benefit from things like discovery, which can advance our cases. But even here, the institutional lenders and servicers have such, such a benefit from the bias of the law that this case, they as Bill mentioned, they won this case on motion for summary judgment after all the discovery was reviewed and considered in that in their own motion. And they won it despite this unfavorable uh, deposition. So it does show what a high bar we have. On the other hand, with complex pleadings like this, you only have to get one judge and one ruling to go in your favor. To change, to change the dynamics of how this will play out in many cases. And Bill, I believe you've, you've had some other, uh, some other discovery and deposition um, developments in other cases recently. Why don't you tell the listeners about that? Well, first I just want to make a comment on discovery um, because, you know, since the early days when we've been fighting these cases, I mean, uh, pro se litigants and attorneys all across the country. I mean, it was kind of difficult to really um, seek certain discovery documents with precision. I mean, it was sort of a broad brush stroke that, uh, you know, uh, in defense of these foreclosures, they would be accused or we would be accused of uh, going on fishing expeditions because we were vague and ambiguous in our requests. And I think in this particular fact pattern um, with these WAMU loans and Chase, I think we're, we, we've got it down now so precise that it doesn't uh, take a whole lot of discovery. We know exactly where to go and what to do, and that's why I want to tell these listeners that you want the dock line report system specifically, and you want the LISA uh, information in that LISA system with the investor codes 
Well, loan transfer history screenshots, very pointed, specific discovery because those documents that we now know are in their possession and control are going to absolutely uh, pretty much, I mean, prove what, what I've been saying and what those of us have been fighting, this, uh, fighting against Chase. It's going to prove it right there. Now that we have this information on the code such as AO1, and I wrote an article on the $615 billion worth of loans that went through the subsidiaries, I'm, I'm confident that these uh, screenshots are all are going to have um, these subsidiary codes in there. And if so, guess what? These loans did not go through the FDIC, and their house of cards begins to tumble down. And uh, so I don't think discovery has to be very um, uh, lengthy in the requests. I think it can be very like a, with, with sniper precision. Uh, it can be focused at, like a laser and to go after these things. And I'm sure they're going to give pushback to which then you obviously have to file a motion to compel and so on and so forth. But we can justify it now by saying, listen, here's what's going on in these other cases. Here is where they are clearly lying and not telling the truth. Here is what they've been hiding and concealing and, and playing uh, and filibustering uh, with their witnesses. But they've admitted here's where it is and this is what we need. And uh, the only way to really get around that, and I wouldn't put it past, Chase, because I've seen some of these screenshots already being scrubbed, I believe anyway, that uh, they're appearing with loan transfer histories after the receivership and they fail to state any of these transfers prior to the receivership. So there's, there's games now going on in terms of manipulating the data. And I think that's a very dangerous place for them to go. Um, but anyhow, we know essentially, uh, quote unquote, where the bodies are buried now very specifically. Um, in terms of uh, other evidence that's coming out, um, I think this is, I don't know how much more time we have here to Charles, but, um, and it's probably going to be a, a topic for another day, but when we've had... Yeah, we've got a few, few more minutes, yeah. Bill. Uh, so, yeah, we can we can take that, that other case up at another time. But one thing I think would also be helpful for the listeners to, to hear you speak about, um, I mean, isn't what's going on in this case that we've been discussing, isn't it essentially violating one of the consent decrees, the, the, the sort of global agreements that Chase settled with the government on? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it violates it every which way but loose, um, especially when, you know, you, you know, pick apart any one of these behaviors and things that they're doing, whether it's the alteration of the documents and applying endorsements after the fact uh, to the assignments that they're executing, uh, claiming that uh, they're the, you know, the beneficiary and owner or mortgagee uh, on these uh, loans when they're not. Um, especially in the non-judicial states, they're executing uh, these documents for purposes of getting to that substitution of trustee and the, and the notices of default that we talked about previously. I mean, all of these behaviors, but um, but what I alluded to earlier here is that the consent judgments specifically require that anyone who's giving these certifications or verifications has to be fully trained on these systems. Now, one of the things in, in the uh, Rhode Island case with McCormick is that in his affidavits, when he verifies, allegedly verifies uh, that Chase is the owner of the of the note and, and the debt and the whole nine yards, 
number one, he doesn't identify himself as an attorney uh, for for Chase, and I think it's kind of interesting that um, that his real role when we eventually tracked him down because he doesn't work for Chase at the time we deposed him anymore, uh, but he was there. That Chase is having attorneys uh, doing this and not you know disclosing that. I don't know if that's an issue or not necessarily, but. Um, in his deposition, he's basically saying that when he came into the case in 2011, he didn't see a note with any endorsements on it. And, and so right there, uh, that tells you that, that the notes that eventually are submitted with endorsements came sometime after the receivership and after 2011. And when we, or I shouldn't say we, but when he was asked the specific question, where would we find out when that note was endorsed and by who and when? Is there a way? I don't know. Does anybody at Chase know the answer? I don't know. Um, and then we said, is there somewhere in the system that would have it? He says, perhaps. And then the question finally is, well, would you know where to look? Sure. So it's just ridiculous that he knows where it is. He knows the answer, but he's he's playing coy and he's, uh, you know, talking out of both sides of his mouth. So, um, yeah, there's the, the consent judgments. Again, there's, uh, there are so many violations there. It's, it, and that's no big surprise. I mean, these behaviors are, are continuing unabated today as, as though that thing has had no, no effect. It hasn't been enforced. And that's what we're seeing on uh, these FOIA requests through LPS that uh, Eric Maines yeah, has been that's talking really good about. information, Bill. I think we're coming up yeah. to the end of our show. And Neil will be back uh, next week. Again, Neil's show uh, takes place the second and fourth Thursday of each month. And I will be back on the West Coast show in two weeks. And thank you, Bill, for joining me today. My, my pleasure. Thank you, Charles. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.